Welcome to Did You Know, the podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the executives of colour who have led the way in the UK music business. Today, we're in conversation with Jade Richardson, A&R at Warner Records UK. As with all our guests, we like to ask them why they chose the music industry. Here's what Jade had to say when we asked her. It was always my passion, whether that was dancing to off the wall in the front room, doing shows for guests, to um, ending up at the British school because it just sounded better than an ordinary school. <laughs> Your journey is a remarkable one. It's taking you back and forth across the waters to New York and to back into the UK. And we'll explore that as we go. But I always like to find out what kind of music influenced people as they grew up. But your house was a house that was full of music and for good reason. So it'd be really nice for you to to kind of tell us more about that. Well, Dad um, was a musician, uh, a steel pan man from Trinidad, steel drum rather. And uh, so, yeah, Calypso, Soca um, and, and live pan music was a massive part of, um, of my upbringing. Going back to Trinidad, I spent a lot of time in pan yards as a kid listening to rehearsals. And then my mum had her taste, which was everything from the Carpenters to Lionel Richie to Carly Simon. So it was quite it was quite broad, really. As I got older, my taste started to veer towards black music more. And uh, whether that was Whitney Houston, Soul to Soul, um, Earth, Wind and Fire, was, I had the, the, the fortunate... Yep. Uh, to see them live in Atlantic City once, which was amazing. Um, so, yeah, and then, you know, jungle, rap, <laughs> R&B, <laughs> hip-hop, and all that, you know, late, came later. But um, everything, really, everything. And it all stemmed from being at home, listening to Dad, playing his steel drums. And I read somewhere, I think, in the bug that you kind of sent over, that he played with Elton John on something. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, he he was a big session musician, so loads of people, Boney M, Fleetwood Mac, Elton John, David Essex, um, loads of projects. And then he formed a band with some fellow Trinidadians called Batty Mamzelle, which signed to Cube Records, and they ended up doing the soundtrack to David Hockney's film, A Bigger Splash. Um, so, yeah, Dad, Dad did his thing, and... and Jimmy Chambers and some of the people that were in that band later went on to be London Beat and, you know, were in Culture Club and so on. So he, he left the UK and moved out into sort of Germany and Switzerland, uh, where a lot of those guys stayed here in the scene. And what's really interesting is that quite often when we talk to our guests, they never realised there was a music business that they could be a part of. But clearly that wasn't the case in your world. I mean, as growing up, you knew the music business existed and that it was real. So once you've discovered that, you decide to go off to Brit school. What was the thinking behind that? Was performance always a big thing in your life? Yeah, definitely. I was a dancer. I danced my way through secondary school. We used to have an annual show that... um me and my two friends did a dance every year in front of the whole school. So it was En Vogue, Hold On, one year, and we had the lips and the earrings. And one year it was Tracy Chapman, Fast Car. But, you know, we were kind of known as the girls that did the dance every year. 
So my dance teacher was leaving to go and teach at the Brit School. I went to a secondary school in, in a partner called Elliot. And uh, she said, you should apply. You'd love it. And that was how it happened. I applied and I got a place. And what was Brit School like? Because... No, we don't really get a sense of what it's like inside. We all think it looks like like a scene from Fame. Is it? Is it like that? Uh, you know what? Early on, it was a little bit. You sort of go in the canteen, and there was girls with like leggings on, just after a dance class, stretching. You know, and I did used to sort of think this is a madness. You know, um, we're not down the shops anymore eating chips and curry sauce, like, um, as it was at my secondary school. Um, but yeah. It was definitely very different for me. A lot of the kids that went there when it first opened had come from stage school. So for them, it was weird in other ways. Um, But for me, it was just this amazing opportunity to be around people that loved the arts and were studying it. And I, I, I just loved every second of it. And around that time, you decided that you wanted to put together a band, right? Yes, I did. So I met a, a lovely girl called Rosita, who it transpired's father, who was also a Trinidadian, knew my dad. So one day we were just chatting in the hallway and we like rang our mums like, Mum, I'm with Ghost Daughter. Oh gosh, tell her, you know, and all this kicked up. And, um, and her best friend was a girl called Fiona Gordon and my best mate was a girl called Fiona Prince. And so there you have it. That was the beginning of our girl group. And then DJ Elaine, who at the time had just come off the back of the, you know, the 291 Club at, at Hackney Empire, had an A&R role at EMI and she was putting a compilation together and she put us on it and, and made a record with us and... And that was sort of the beginning of A level. We were called. We then we then morphed into Ocean, who was an African goddess of creativity. But uh, but you know that was our journey really then. And, and I did that for four years, four or five years with the girls. You know, recording, writing, trying to hone our craft. And did you enjoy the journey as as an artist at that particular point? Did you think you were going to get the big deal? We kind of nearly did. You know, we were working with. Um, Link, we, well, first of all, we were with Elaine, and that was EMI, and then Julian Close was kind of alongside her at that time, and he'd done Eternal. So there was a lot of back and forth with them and with um, First Avenue Management at the time. They were kind of sort of, you know, hovering around us. And then Ralph Daly and the m era, and he started hovering around. So there was a lot of hovering. And then um, – we finally uh, got a manager, a lady called Doe Phillips, who worked, she was a New Yorker that was working for Sony in the UK. Um, and we went in to see Lincoln Elias at S2. And so Lincoln showcased us and started putting us in sessions. And that was going to happen. And then our producer uh, declined on making the record. <laughs> it was a really strange scenario. And so that kind of all just sort of, imploded on itself a little bit um and shortly after I think we split up as a girl group and you know we went solo as everyone always does you have to go solo right you have to go solo (laughs) so what happened past the the band and the the solo career which I'm presuming didn't kind of go where you wanted it to go Well, it's what led me to New York. So when we were in the group, we got introduced to D'Angelo's manager, Dominic Trenier, who later became a very, very 
big influence in my life and friend, um, mentor. And so when the group split, I'd been in Chris Ellis's publishing uh, studios beginning to record on my own. And I um, decided I was going to go out to the States. I think Fiona had done a deal with Julian Palmer at, is it Disco Volante, a label like that? I can't remember. Um, and so I flew out to sort of hang out with Fiona in the States. And I thought, oh, let me check out Dom and go and play in my music, you know, because I've gone solo and he really liked our group. And that led to a multitude of things. But in that process, I decided to give up being an artist because I was surrounded by such talent from Nika Costa, who was making her, you know, second or debut album. I can't remember now. I think it was her second album. She did her first one on Mushroom and she just partnered up with Mark Ronson, who was a new DJ that Don was managing. And, yeah, I was sort of just hanging out with, you know, the best. And then, and then every time they'd be like, so, yo, you sing too, Jay? Like, I'd be like, uh, yeah, not today. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of just came away going, that's not supposed to how you feel. You know, you're not supposed to feel like that when someone asks you to sing if this is your destiny. And I kind of started to rethink my, my career path. <laughs> what did you learn from your time in New York? What did you take back, take away from it? Anything's possible. Follow your dreams. Yeah, I, I got to I got to mingle and go to parties and just when I look back, you know, I'd be hanging out at Wesley Snipes' house or going to an event that Giorgio Armani had done the invite on an audio that got sent to you on CD or, you know, seeing D'Angelo at the Cheetah Club and Naomi Campbell in the corner with Roy Hargroves playing with him. It was just, it was just, when I look back, it was such a amazing time going to see Mark DJing at life with Funkmaster Flex in the main room and just thinking that was normal you know and then seeing how so much of what I was around still now is like you know the backbone of our culture in many ways and given the fact that you were having such a great time in New York learning so much around some incredible people that were having great, great career success and were about to have career success, you decided to bring yourself back to the UK. I did. Um, well, actually, my plan was to come home, regroup and go back to New York. I wanted to relocate. I was going to go and work. Uh, Dominic's friend at the time, no, his assistant, uh, a lovely lady called Jody. Her husband, Serge, owned the Barry Bar, which was like the happening place. So I was going to go back and my, my eyes were on a little just, you know, sort of waitress job in the Barry Bar to just have a go at making it work in New York. And that was my plan. And then when I came back to the UK, Doe, who was my old manager when we were in the girl group, called me to say there was a job going um, as an A&R scout for a new publishing company that was launching in the UK called Famous Music and her friend was interviewing and she thought I should go for it and so I did and I got the job so suddenly my plan to go to New York was put on ice because I suddenly had a proper job. One of the things that's espoused in the music business is the fact it's it's not what you know but it's who you know. How important do you think it was for you at that point in your career? Massively important. You know my my first, I'd say, six months in the job at Famous Music, I was able to take my boss to the Met Bar to meet D'Angelo's manager. And 
you know, she was like, how's this kid pulling that off? And it was like, because I'm in it. This is what I've been doing. Like, um, and it was, you know, when I look back, they were really uh, important things I was able to draw in. But to me, it was just my mate Don from New York. But actually, to everyone else, he was one of the most powerful managers in the industry at the time. And you look at the business at that particular point, you've, you've an A&R scout, you're working at this brand new publishing company, you're around people within the music business. How many people did you see around you that actually were a, were a reflection of you? There were no women in A&R at all. I think there was maybe two that I can remember back then. Um, one who sadly passed away, um, Joanne McCormack. She was responsible for the Spice Girls. And then there was um, Cheryl Robson. And then later there was a young girl called Charlie who worked at Independiente. Um, that I was, I was a scout at the same time as her. But that was it. There was no girls and there were certainly no women of colour. And what piece of advice did you get at that point that you found really useful to you as you started your journey? If I'm honest, I don't feel like it was that type of a time where, you know, you had elders coming forth going, you know, here's, a, here's another pearl of wisdom. It was kind of just get on with it, you know. Some of the things that when I look back maybe were mentioned that I think were, were useful um, was ultimately, in a nutshell, listen. Try not to talk too all the time and listen because quite often you'll get the information and more if you just listen. And did you feel a, any sense of isolation by not having those people reflected back at you that looked like you as you were going about your your, your day? Did it worry you? Did you think about it at all? I, I think I probably wondered why there were less women I don't know that I was thinking about whether there were less black women. Um, it just was the way the music business was. There were no black men either. <laughs> you know, there was Darkus over at Ireland. There was Glynn at Relentless. There was just so few black people, full stop. It just was a bit like that's the way it is. Let's talk about your journey from A&R Scout in publishing, working at Famous to the next part of your journey? How did you progress from Famous to working for a record company? There was a book called The, the A&R Directory, and it literally printed all the A&Rs at every label in the world. And uh, it was my Bible. And, you know, they got updated, I think, you know, every sort of quarter or whatever. And I used to just work my way through it in the evenings and hit people up all over the world that I didn't know. <laughs> Hello, I'm Jane. <laughs> what, are you, yeah, what are you saying? This is what, you know, I was just really sort of into meeting people and, and all that. And um, I did that one day. Unbeknown to me, I'd contacted the director of Polydor Records. He said, come in, like, come in and play me some music, you know. Because I was like, I'm publisher, you're A&R Records, that's what we're supposed to do, right? Swap notes, I'm into this, you're into that. So I, I remember going in one evening and just doing what I do. And I love this and I love that. And then I got offered a job, like, I don't know, that week from that person. That was how that started. And then I decided I'd take the plunge and go go into records. And tell us about some of your signings. Um, well, I hit the ground running, as they say. <laughs> Which is why I asked. Um, 
really early on, a young lady called Miss Dynamite came to my attention. My friend Sarah Lockhart, uh, who now runs Sony ATV um, with, with David Ventura, was working at Essential Distribution. And I was putting a girl group together, a garage girl group. They were called Ladies First. And I was looking for an MC. And she'd seen Dynamite at an after party uh, and said, you should link her, you'd like her. And um, I went and met her in Carnaby Street. Yeah, I just loved her. I loved what she was doing. I mean, we put her in with Sticky shortly after. And... Um, yeah, all the all the sort of details were slight blur, but my fiance at the time ended up managing her. I don't know at which bit that happened. Um, Boo then came, and everyone was trying to sign her. And obviously, I was like, "Well, obviously, I've got to do it. Like, yeah. you can't take it to Ashley Newton at Virgin when you're my man. I know her. Like, you're mad. <laughs> like, we're going to do it over here. And and yeah, and that was what happened. We signed her to Polydor. Um, and and Sarah, I think Sarah did the deal for publishing. So meanwhile, Sarah had shifted over to work at EMI Publishing with Guy and Moot. So Guy and Sarah did the publishing, I think, before we did the records. And so it was just amazing because Guy just rolled out his, his, his phone book, you know, and Salam Remy was at the top of the list. And, I mean, again, I just thought that this was the way it was, but... You know, years later, I'm like, Salam was an absolute genius. What a great place to start. You know, we flew out to New York and Miami and started making records with someone who, you know, is a such a rare, rare find, you know, and a rare talent and a rare human being, you know. Um, and and that was that was Guy being able to make those things happen and, and us having the talent to back it and the energy to follow through, you know. Um, and we started making her debut album. Which was an unbelievable success. Mercury Prize winner, um, critically acclaimed. Clearly a big feather in your cap. But, I mean, Miss Dynamite wasn't your only success whilst you were at Polydor. She was definitely the biggest success, for sure. Um, I then went on to uh, launch an imprint at Polydor with one of my friends at the time. Um, he was at Virgin, a guy called Seb Chu. And, uh, you know, the, the imprint that we, we had signed Scissor Sisters, Gemma Fox, Curtis Lynch Jr., uh, The End, um, Tom Middleton. God, we, 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 did, we did quite a bit. It's, it's so long ago. It took me a minute to just <laughs> even remember them all. But, no, none of them, well, the, the, the Scissor Sisters and, and, and those projects that Seb led on ended up being you know, very successful, but the acts that I'd signed beyond Dynamite weren't as big as her, um, sadly. Uh, but, you know, it was it was such an embryonic time for black music in the UK, you know. And at the height of the success you're having, you decide you're going to walk away and do something completely different with a change of career. Yeah, so I went and worked with a charity in East London called Urban Development, um, I'd met them from doing a panel for them one day at a university or a college somewhere in Stratford and kept in touch with the lady that ran the organisation. And if I'm honest, I'd prior to getting into music, I'd always wanted to be a teacher. I, I love I love learning. I love young people. I love, 
giving back it really fulfills me and um and I just felt like I needed that you know I felt like I wanted to work with my community and so I went to work with urban development and the sort of I suppose the the idea was that I was going to help bridge the gap between the major record label industry and all the young people that wanted to get into it and we were going to offer intervention and support and mentoring and funding and courses and seminars to prepare them for that journey into music and I was going to help lead all of that you know with with an amazing team there was loads of people there as well um so yes I did that for quite a while and once you've done that and you you still continue to be a part of that today and I know it's something you're incredibly proud of and you're wedded to once you've done that what was your next move because that was equally as impressive and equally as influential um I can't remember if it was rinse or my TV but stint that's the sound of someone who is a true pioneer. Yeah, I can't remember which came next. Actually, you know, I think then what came next was I ducked out completely and went off to do healing and become a flower essence therapist <laughs> and train as a new neurolinguistic programmer and start walking on burning coal and breaking wood with my hands and, you know, mirroring people and all that. Um, then I went to Alaska and learned about flowers and, oh, gosh, then I ended up in the Caribbean and Africa making flowers essences and I, I launched a whole range of products called island essences so yeah I think that happened next and then when I came back from that I think I went I think I must have done the tv thing somewhere in the middle and then I was at rinse so can we explore the tv thing because that's an element that I wasn't aware of so you've given away something now that no that very few people may may have known but they're going to know about it now Jade so tell us about tell us about your foray into tv Okay, so uh, Sonia Skinner, an amazing friend of mine from Polydor International, asked me to get involved in a project. I was going to be helping source talent. Um, We collaborated with Aviate Records out in New York, Fat Man Scoop, Mark Pitreon, I think was his name. Yep. Um, And ultimately, we took, I think, nine unsigned artists from the UK to New York and we filmed the process and we put them in the rooms with talent that was established and we kind of documented the story it was um yeah it was really interesting so my job was helping find the talent in the UK and then um helping find the established talent to include in the show so you know I was able to involved Salam and Nas and Ronson and yeah it was absolutely amazing and Sonia pulled in all her sort of international links with you know we we interviewed Gangstar, Russell Simmons like it was amazing absolutely amazing time. I worked with Attic Productions who were the, the big production team at Channel 4 they were based in Westbourne Studios and I loved it I was out out on location for like a month in New York, just filming and flying off to Miami to do bits and coming back. And and, it, and it's a very different world to music television. And then, and then after that came back to the UK and continued to work on the back end of the show before it went, you know, live. And then they wanted me to be a presenter, the woman that <laughs> used to work on the words who sort of discovered Makita Oliver was like, you'd be great. So then they screen tested me. 
And I was, I was horrendous. <laughs> and so that's the end of that shortly. It was around the time George, oh. Lamb, George Lamb was coming through. He was a mate of mine as well. And, uh, and, and I was just like, you're really good at it. And I'm really not. <laughs> Past your foray into TV, which clearly you enjoyed, two other massive and influential moments for black music, you know, not just in the UK, but nationally and internationally that you were involved with that gave rise to a number of burgeoning careers. I suppose you're referring to I Love Live and Rinse. 100%. They are so important and your influence on those is so important. We should pay homage to your work and hear your story about those both those organisations. Okay, so um, I Love Live uh, was um, something that I started when I left Polydor from memory in 2004. It was um, another great woman of colour called Natalie Wade. Uh, between us somehow magicked up this idea of a live music night and so uh, my my best friend's um, ex-footballer husband had just bought a, a bar on Wardour Street and it happened to be underneath Mr Jerks so it was just screaming out at me you can have jerk chicken <laughs> and, and black live music downstairs at Sugar Sugar let's go and what's not to love about that right <laughs> exactly so we set to work again. Uh, a massive inspiration for me was um, John Z D's night, Apricot Jam, that I used to go to um, in Dingwalls in Camden. And the drummer there, Cassell, the beat maker, I had got to know when I was managing Mpo. He was a producer and a collaborator she'd worked with. So I hit Cassell up to ask if he'd be the in-house drummer. And the idea was that we offered a live place for black artists to come and share their new music. Um, so often I'd get called to raves at three in the morning to watch people I was looking at because it was the only way they could perform. You know, like when I was trying to sign Dukes, he wasn't even really on those types of records. But, you know, you'd go to Watford to see him at four in the morning just spitting bars. And so I wanted a place where someone like that could come and, and perform what was in their computer or in their head and just show us with, with, with instrumentation. And that was how I Love Live started. Um, I collaborated with Twin B and Raskwami, who at the time were the face of, of homegrown UK talent at radio. And it just, it just all came together perfectly. And, and I Love Live was an absolute joy to be a part of. You know, there was... So many people involved, so many wonderful people from the hosts that we rotated every week to the musicians that came down, you know, our Sharks, Harmony, Samuel, some of these people have gone to, to win Grammys. You know, they would just be down there with their keyboards or their guitars just jamming, you know. Um, artists like Tubby T, Rest in Peace, you know, JME, I remember doing Serious Live, you know, like, Plan B did his EP launch there. So the night just grew and grew and grew. And it was a real networking spot for people that came after work. And, you know, Charlesy was, was his brother was our DJ. He used to stand on a crate because he couldn't reach the decks. <laughs> like, I remember that, actually. I bet he doesn't. You know, like, just so many characters. I think later on, as I Love Live morphed into bigger venues and grew... Emily Sunday, I think, met like Chipmunk there and Roll Deep ended up using Cassell as their drummer for tours. You know, Plan B ended up working with Cassell, Cassell for years to come. There was just such a 
organic and natural energy of sharing of talent and ideas and community and and it, it was amazing it, absolutely amazing I loved it it was an iconic night and it, it launched so many different careers and I can remember being down in the crowd on many of those nights listening to some incredible musicians so you move from there and then it's another adventure with Rinse. Yeah, so my long-term um, Cody, Sarah Lockhart, who we'd worked on Dynamite together, had gone on to partner up with Genius uh, from Pay As You Go to uh, really try and grow Rinse FM. Um, and one of the challenges was turning it from a pirate radio station into something uh, a little bit more accessible. And the route that we were going to have to take was um, applying for a community radio licence. So because of the work that I had done over the years with urban development in in the community, um, they asked me to come in and help them with that. And we set up a, a, an academy at Rinse where we started to offer courses and, and mentoring and work placements and um, and simultaneously, KEB was, you know, emerging and Magnetic Man men were emerging. And suddenly it was like I was in rinse <laughs> doing everything. And, you know, um, and yeah, and, and then that was that journey and that lasted. I don't know how, how long I was at rinse even, but it was, it was a really, really enjoyable experience working in such a small independent team and launching careers and you know when you're working with such a small team you have to be able to do everything and that is exactly what happened at Rinse we just all did everything and got on with it you know and what made you make the change back into A&R was there still a kind of sense of unfinished business a hundred percent as I was working on Katie and taking her out to do promo or helping to source clothes for video shoots, whatever I was doing that day. And, and if I'm brutally honest, looking at the amount of PAs that were coming in and the kind of money that was being made, I was just like, this is crazy. Like, I could do this again. Like, and then randomly, <laughs> randomly, the phone started ringing at rinse. And people kept asking for me and linking me to Tiny Temper. And, I, you know, I was just like, what? I didn't, I didn't know. Anyway, long story short, um, Jamie, who was label manager, was like, there's an article online about you discovering Tiny Temper and tipping off the label. They said, so now we were getting all these rappers calling, like, <laughs> I want to talk to her. <laughs> and, and so Miles Leonard had, had said that about me. Um because because I had told him about Tiny and I'd seen Tiny at Wireless and he was unsigned and I'd gone in because we had my artist signed to him and I'd said, you need to check him out. I mean, the tent was absolutely rammed, you know, da 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 And then we ended up doing a Disturbing London Showcase at I Love Live and then he got signed. So it was just so weird how all that stuff happens. And then Miles was like, Jade, come and work with us. Come back. Um, it's crazy, you know. And I said, okay. And I left Rinse and, and I went back to 
what was the new virgin. So Miles had been running Parlophone for like, I don't know, 15, 20 years, and they just asked him to take on Virgin. You've now had a long a long association with the Universal family, and from Virgin, you're now part of Ireland, and you're in there. How's life changed for Jade Richardson in the intervening period? Um, I think probably the biggest shift is I'm no longer an employee for uh, Universal. I consult and I've got my own uh, company. So I have a bit more freedom, which was something that was important to me. I wanted to start managing um, and I wanted to be able to do other things that interested me when they came up. Um, So, yeah, so that's probably the biggest difference. And as a woman in the business, you've seen some enormous changes in the time you've been in it. How do you think the business has changed in its relationship to the way it treats its its female counterparts in, in, in relation to men? I think that there is a lot of work to still be done, but we're making headway finally and conversations are happening. Um, people's awareness is a little bit, People are just a little bit more awake um, and and aware of, of, of where we can do better. And as a woman of colour in the business, do you think that at any point your colour and your gender has been a barrier for progression? I think without a shadow of a doubt, it, it posed challenges on my journey, sometimes, you know, unbeknown to me, unconscious to me. Um, but... I think that, you know, as with any industry, you have to push past those challenges and the talent and the determination has to lead, you know. And going on from there, one of the things I know that's clearly been tasked to you and is very important in your world now is being part of the Universal Task Force, which is aimed at at looking at ensuring greater diversity and greater opportunity within the universal organization what are your aims and ambitions for that i mean i know that you can't go into it too deeply but i mean what are you hoping to what are you hoping to be able to do i think the the key for the task force is to really make um meaningful change it's it's in the title of of the you know the, the i don't know what you'd call it division that the group of people that have come together um we want to support the black community we want to support our black artists and we want to um readdress the balance i suppose through following through with action and i and i hope that the wider you know industry and community at universal will see the intention to really really make a change really make a difference and improve you know the status quo one of the challenges that we clearly need to, to, to address is the one of having more ethnic voices in the boardroom and clearly more women around the table influencing and making decisions. How important do you think that is and do you see that as a real opportunity? Um, I think it's extremely important and it's the only, only way we're going to grow um, as, a, as a community, as a culture, as an industry. Um, I think headway's being made, you know. Do you think that women are going to be afforded the same opportunity as their male counterparts in the 21st century music business? We, we've got a lot more work to do. But the fact I can, you know, start calling off names of, of black women that I respect, that are amazing, that are in, in powerful positions now, 
is a step in the right direction. One of the discussions I always have with my sons, one of which you'll know, is what sacrifices are you prepared to make to ensure that meaningful change happens for the next generation? For me, I think probably giving up my time is a big one. You know, that's a sacrifice I make daily to go the extra mile, to have that conversation, to to offer that that help. Quite often that's never enumerated, often forgotten. I think that that's the duty that we all have to continue to give back, you know. So that that feels like the most obvious thing. Um, I feel like I've had to take a few blows in my time that hopefully the people coming up behind me, the punches will be a little less harder. Yeah, let's hope so. You look back now, and clearly there's still a lot more for Jade Richardson to do, but when you look at where black music is now, how much do you think it's changed in terms of the power and influence that not only the music but the artists have? have? I think it's changed dramatically and it excites me enormously. Um, And I think that we're only going to get stronger and bigger and better, you know, America is always a good place to assess what's happening. And, you know, the, the, the power of even R&B music at the moment in the States fills me with absolute joy because I've spent many years making records in that genre to get told, oh, it doesn't work, no one cares, you know, it doesn't sell. So it's, it's just, I just think it's the evolution, isn't it, uh, of, the, of the business, of the sound, of the artists, of the culture, of pop music and it just it doesn't feel like there's such a separation to me anymore anyway it just all feels like it is popular music and kids want to hear it and yeah I think I think we're going to continue to to grow and become even more powerful and throughout your time in the business and in life there's all there are always people that are inspirational who have been some of the people that have been inspirational and influential in your career as you've as you've gone through I've got a name check, Jackie Davidson, because she probably was the only black woman I knew when I started. She was managing New Colours when I was at Polydor. And Jackie's still here now, you know. I'll, I'll call her now for a chat. And um, and and I don't think I realised how important or inspiring it was to have Jackie around until now when I look back and I'm like, she was just there killing it consistently tim blacksmith danny d from the tells from the blacksmith days you know when i was in my girl group and they were making their music as two black british men that have gone on to smash it globally my colleagues my my peers the glins the darkuses um the other people coming through the botang brothers um the women you know Shah grant uh, Faye hoy you know Jackie, there's so many, um, a free A, you know, there's just so many people now that I consider friends that that's that's what's exciting and inspiring about it. You can have a phone call conversation and share a story of something that's happened at work and know that the person you're talking to really understands where you're coming from. And who provides you with inspiration? The artists, the art, the culture. What is the proudest moment in your career to date? I think there have been many little moments, but one that really springs to mind for so many different reasons was, uh, I think just before lockdown last year, um, 
a couple of the women I mentioned earlier, they'd set up a, an event called the Debrief. Um, and it was really a, a safe space for black women to come together and share stories and encourage one another and network. And it was it was really special to share that with people that were so interested, felt that they'd taken something away from it and that I could look in the room and go, oh, my gosh, that's Lorna Clark or, oh, my gosh, that's Sonia Diwan or, you know, people that I've looked up to. And I'm like, why am I telling you my story? Like, this is crazy. And that just felt I was proud that I had something that was worthy of sharing that, you know, can hopefully inspire somebody else, me, 20 years ago, sitting on a chair going, I, I can do what she did. I'm going to go and do that. And if you were going to encourage another young woman to follow in your footsteps, what would you say to them? Follow your instinct, believe in yourself, work extremely hard, go get it. And finally, did you make the right choice coming back from New York all those years ago or not going back to New York? I don't live in regret. Everything unravels the way it's supposed to. Um, I've enjoyed every part of my journey, the highs, the lows, the twists, the turns. So, yeah, I'm good. And there is no better place to leave it than that. Jade Richardson, clearly a true pioneer. Thank you for joining us on Did You Know today. Thank you for having me. I'm Adrian Sykes. Thanks for listening to Did You Know? a downstreet production our thanks to Jade for sharing her stories and to my partner in crime and true pioneer Danny D thanks also to Sean Springer our production team of Cass Denton and Lanique Swartz and to Ella Ruby on the socials our theme tune is composed by Vega Brothers Honourable mentions to Dave Roberts and Tim Ingham at MBW for their support. You'll soon be able to apply to be mentored by the guests of the Did You Know podcast. Keep listening for further information. Did You Know is available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure that you subscribe to never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. And look out for our next episode with Dumi Obiroto, co-founder of Disturbing London, where I'll be talking about his remarkable journey and career to date. This was Did You Know? Until the next time.